In case you missed the news, a few days ago, Gwen Knapp, the former San Francisco Chronicle sports columnist and more recently an editor at the New York Times, died of lymphoma at age 61. And while Gwen probably wasn't one of America's most famous sports writers, she was certainly one of its best. She took on Lance Armstrong well before most of us were willing to call him out as a drug fraud. She never cowered in fear around Barry Bonds when the rest of us did. And here's something from October 3rd, 2000 that really does it for me. Beneath the headline, Women Perfect Counterpart to Ungracious Men at Games. At the 1996 Olympics, America's female athletes rewrote history. At the 2000 Summer Games, they edited the dictionary. Go to the letter S and look up the word that means dignity in competition. It should read a little differently now with an extra consonant, an extra vowel. It has grown, expanded into sportswomanship. Not, mind you, sportspersonship. The change isn't about political correctness. It's about accuracy. The women of Sydney outdid the men in the graciousness arena. It was a blowout, an utter rout. If the men won anything this easily, they'd probably gloat. Rest in peace, Gwen. You were a great one. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Singing the Air, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Melissa Isaacson, the former Chicago Tribune Jordan Arab Bulls beat writer, former ESPN columnist, and the current Northwestern Journalism professor. This is episode number 295. Let's sing some Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Missy, you're sitting in front of a shower curtain. I am. (laughs) We both teach. I teach as an adjunct at Chapman. You teach as a full-time professor at a much better college known as Northwestern, which you've shoved in my face about a million times with your Northwestern mug and your hat. And you're like, oh, I teach Northwestern. And I I get it. I get it. (laughs) Do you still want these students to pursue careers in journalism? Do you still think, because they're not going to be able to have the path we had. It's very unlikely. Does it even make sense? They come to school, they're spending a shitload of money to attend Northwestern. Is it even worth it for them to pursue this? I mean, if I start thinking it's not, then I feel like I need to get out because I do sincerely believe that. I see them get jobs. I see them actually taking much the same path that we did, surprisingly, that wasn't the case 10 years ago because of the athletic taking uh, newspaper reporters um, and newspaper reporters leaving for, for good and bad reasons. And then, you know, other other times just being laid off. And then all of a sudden, those same newspapers turning around and going, uh, uh, yeah, we still need to hire some people. Let's hire cheap, just graduated kids. And then my kids get really good jobs, a lot of my students. Yeah, like when I first started teaching, my my friends in the business would be like, oh my God, what are you telling them? Like to run for the hills? And I did really have to, think about that. Um, and and I used to tell them day one all about being laid off twice. And, all, and I was like so upfront that I think it was almost too much. I don't hide it, but I don't make a whole big point the first day that I was laid off twice. I do tell them, you know, that I adored my career and I still think there's a place for storytellers. Yeah. Right. August 16th, 1983, Florida Today, your first newspaper. Never. <laughs> Preps are sweating it out. Practice sessions heat up. Melissa Isaacson. 
August 15th, circled in red. It's the day every high school football player looks toward with a strange mixture of excitement and dreadfulness. The first day of that ungodly ritual called two-a-days, where not once but twice each day for two weeks, the athlete must drag himself out and practice under the August sun. Called everything from, quote, a necessary evil by Tuttlesville coach Al Wernicke to a tough, grueling time by Coco coach Neely Dunn. The common denominator is sweat and lots of it. Now, first of all, that's a really fucking good lead for a very young reporter. It's 1983. You're a graduate of the University of Iowa. You wind up at Florida today. How'd you wind up at Florida today? Uh, which for people who don't know is a newspaper. A Gannett company. Uh, so I was thrilled to death. And, uh, you know, like all of us, I applied to, I don't know, 80 to 100 newspapers, which in those days applying meant I wrote letters to everyone. And for a long time, I saved all the rejections and they were really funny because most of them said things like, thanks, but we have a woman or wow. we, have a girl, we have a girl. Oh, yeah. Tons of them said that. And I was like, damn, I have to find someone who doesn't have a girl. And um, and then Wait, Missy, can I say one thing. Yeah, I think it's funny how I think a lot of people from our era saved the rejection letters for a while. And I think it's funny how we had this like, we'll show them and like one down. And it's like, they don't give a shit. Like, they don't care. <laughs> They're not like, oh, I can't believe I didn't hire Jeff Perlman. They don't I care. know. When I moved out of, well, when I my parents passed away and I and I had to go and, you know, move all this stuff out of their house and everything was so awful. And, uh, you know, and, and I've got these letters. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. why on earth would I want those? Now I kind of think it'd be fun and cool. But, yeah, I dumped those so quick. But, um yeah, I, so I think it was just the one that said yes, and they were fantastic. I mean, they were Tom Verducci worked there. I took his place, um, not really, but but he went to Newsday the day I got there, and this is really funny. I was such a moron. I get there, and he there, and they invite me to a party, and I was like, God, is that nice? Like this is so nice, you know. And I get to this. And it's around a pool and everybody's, you know, really nice to me. And Tom Verducci is there. And I'm thinking it's me. Like, I'm thinking I'm like the person of honor at this party. And it was because Tom was going to Newsday. And he was so sweet to me. He had no reason to be because he was leaving. Um, and I don't know if I said anything stupid. But at one point, I did realize that it was not about me at all, not even remotely. And then, uh, and then you know, I, uh, I quickly realized I was in a really great place though it was um uh john Ciracino who went on to usa today was there and all kinds of people went on to great jobs and so not all kinds because our staff was like eight but but it was a gannett paper it was a decent size paper um and i thought it was cool and i lived in cape canaveral florida and like got shaken out of bed by the uh shuttle you know takeoffs first like, salary twelve thousand six hundred. yes I swear to God, I thought it was good. My son just got his first job and he thinks he's rich and he kind of is. And um, he still doesn't quite get the concept that like you don't get all the money just in yeah. a wheelbarrow and like here it is. And he wants to buy toys and things still. But uh, uh, I, I literally thought it was kind of good. I mean, but it was because you were getting paid to write, which is kind of sweet. It was so sweet. And I did get some decent raises for a while. So, you know, in those right. days. Yeah. I do want to sort of broach on the subject of being a woman in the, you know, in the dark ages of journalism. And you, um, you mentioned an experience. I have the story in front of me, actually, because um, if you're of a certain age, one of the landmark moments in college football is Doug Flutie throwing the Hail Mary to beat University of Miami. 
uh, November 23rd, 1984, your article headline Flutie's magic caps miracle BC win. The Heisman isn't good enough for Doug Flutie, but it would do for a starter. Friday night at the Orange Bowl, Flutie left his masses gaping with his 48-yard touchdown pass to Gerard Fallon with no time showing on the clock to give Boston College a 47-45 victory against Miami Hurricanes in a game that saw the two teams amass 1,282 yards in total offense. The last second pass, which traveled about 67 yards in the air and made its way through three Miami defenders, came after a patent Flutie scramble and gave the Eagles a lead for the fifth time in the game. All right. For people, honestly, for people who weren't alive or super young, this was a sonic boom in college football. It was Flutie. It was huge Miami and underdog Flutie. It was about five foot two. And so you're covering this game. It's a big deal. And you can't get in the locker room, correct? You were asking me for various memories. And there are things that I really can't remember. Um, but this one, I really do, uh, obviously, because it was a huge game and stuff. But, um, you know, it was deadline. It was so sweaty and awful and deadline in those days. And in Florida and scary and everything. And then the game of the century, you know, little Doug Flutie. And uh, I remember very vividly the way the locker room looked and everything because, you know, it was just a big deal and everyone's flooding in and they're like, oh, not so fast, little Missy or whatever, you know, little Mrs. Um, you know, as a Jesuit college, there was no way. I mean, they did probably didn't call me little Mrs. But um, they might have, though. They might have. They may have. They may have but that sounds kind of like Texas. <laughs> you know, it sounds like how I was spoken to in Florida all, all the time, um, but not uh, that night. It was just no, no. And by then that was common practice. And so I stood outside and. Um, and Doug Flutie walked out, and I guess it was still within my deadline time, but he walked out pretty quickly because I was still standing out there, and I don't think I would have stood there forever. And, you know, God knows we never have phones that we could be writing on our phones like like I did later in my career. And he was a, a nice kid. And so, you know, he walked by me and I, and I introduced myself, and, like, we had a great one-on-one. -on -one. I don't know if that may have been, like, the first – Edition and I didn't have quotes or something. Um, it, it could have been writing, running, and, and that. But I know I got a good interview, and I think I wrote a follow. And and I guess in those days, the lesson was like you make the most out of it because no one wanted to hear us whining. I mean, no one wanted to hear women complain. You know, our bosses included. I mean, why would I complain? He'd be like, oh, I guess you can't do the job then. So in many ways, I think many of us in those days didn't talk about it and used it to our advantage when we could. And I did many times, actually. I've talked about this on this podcast once or twice before, but one of my favorite moments for women in sports media is there was an AP reporter named Paula Smith. I don't know if you knew Paula Smith. And she, she covered the Pittsburgh Pirates, or she was based in Pittsburgh. And one day she was in the uh, Pirates clubhouse and Dave Parker, she asked to interview Dave Parker, and he was sitting there naked. He points to his penis and he says, I bet you want some of this. And Paula Smith replies, maybe if I could find it with buried within all the fat. It's awesome. You know, nowadays women are much more outspoken, rightly, when something happens, when someone just says something inappropriate, when someone treats them inappropriately. Women are much more emboldened in media to say something because there's much more support and there's a much more of an infrastructure. When you were working back then, and some guy would call you toots or some guy would hit on you or some guy would. Could you respond? Yeah, because there was no um, place to go. There wasn't, you know, awesome was kind of just starting. But mostly we just had this kind of small group of us that we would complain to and embolden each other. And 
you know, you had one, you had two ways of going. Either you'd sort of cry and run out. And Joan Ryan and I, the great Joan Ryan, who's a wonderful writer, you know, Joan has written best-selling books and, you know, San Francisco Examiner. She was my, my idol. She worked at the Orlando Sentinel and I was in, um, I was at Florida today. The, the first time I think this ever happened. And I learned from her because what happened to her was we were covering a USFL game. It's still, that story is still, we were interviewed about it. And then, and then Joan wrote a priceless column the next day about it. Um, and it was the Birmingham Stallions against the USFL or the Orlando Renegades. And uh, they, they surrounded her. So we were both on deadline. We're standing at the door. Joan and I, I look at Joan like, oh, my God. And she just plunges in. She's like, I'm not going to wait for this crap. And she she walks in. Clearly, we weren't welcome. And all of a sudden, I see Joan disappear. And and by that, I mean, like, people encircled her. And uh, I see a guy. Um, well, she may have later told me with a with a razor cutter, a tape cutter, um, stroking her leg um, while she was standing there. And then I see this guy with a shirt that looked like an official team polo shirt. And he's yelling gross stuff at her. And I'm, I'm just about to go to him for help because he looks very official. And then I hear him with all this, you know, just disgusting stuff. I later learn, as Joan did, that this was Jerry Sklar, the team owner. So Joan gets her stuff, though. She got her stuff and she, you know, and she wrote her story. And then the next day she wrote a column with a banner headline across the Orlando Sentinel with the headline. That's why they call them animals. And um, what I learned from that and what I think she did, too, and we've talked about it and um, still talk, I adore her, is nobody wanted to hear that. Nobody wanted to read that. Um, but it was a really powerful, great column. And, you know, I was very scared because I was right out of school. I was emboldened by her, like, screw it. I'm getting, you know, I've got a job and I've got a deadline. I cannot miss it. And so if I have to stand in the middle of these idiots, then that's what I'm going to do. And so I took that, I think, as just a little bit of a badge of, you know, honor. I don't know about honor. I didn't like it. I never liked it being in locker rooms. Um, but I used it even in the Bears locker room on the road once. I mean, I love the Bears. I idolized them as a child in Tampa. You know, I was in the visitor's locker room and they were giving me a hard time. And it was so hurtful, but not scary at that point because I'd been around for a year or so. And I remember kind of giving it back to them, too. And then that's when Walter Payton, of all people, because he was like the biggest prankster, he could have made life worse for me easily. Mm -hmm. But instead, he turned it into like, you know, it's sort of mocking me, but but took me by the arm and took me onto the team bus because I had walked out of the locker room feeling like crap and not having gotten very much. And he walked me onto the team bus and I felt like he was sort of embarrassing me, but sort of being nice and walked me up down the aisle of the team bus and said, hey, she wants to interview you. She's she's from Chicago originally. And like I interviewed guys on the bus because of Peyton. There was a close I ever came to Walter Peyton and that was pretty cool. The column Joan Ryan wrote appeared in uh, March 13th, 1985. The headline was. And sometimes we wonder why we call them animals. OK, I just want to read the lead real quick. It's she wrote because this yeah. is really great. Under the okay. best circumstances, going into a locker room is, is an unnerving, uncomfortable experience for women's sports writer. Under the worst circumstances, it becomes mean and even humiliating, which is what happened Saturday night in the Birmingham Stallions locker room at Orlando Stadium. Several players, most of them undressed, closed in on me when I stepped through the door. They yelled insults at me and made dirty remarks to each other. They laughed. 
I need to interview running back Joe Cribs for a deadline story and asked where his locker was. They ignored me. Suddenly, I felt something on my leg. A player was stroking my calf with a plastic handle of a razor. Angry, shaken, and humiliated, I walked out. A well-dressed man stood by the locker room's open doorway. It was a team president, and he was chuckling. You're entering on your own initiative and therefore are subject to what goes on in there, Stallions president Jerry Sklar told me later. It is not proper a proper place for a female to be. Sklar called my behavior very unladylike and said women who go into locker rooms just want to look at naked men. Would you call her experience exceptional or would you call it what it was to be a woman in the 80s covering pro sports? Yeah, it was definitely what it was. Um, and like I said, we just didn't talk about it. Sometimes it was worse than others. That was, you know, that was definitely on the spectrum of being worse than most. Uh, you know, having someone sort of physically assault you, which which was what that was, and having the owner yell at you. I mean, uh, you could always count on usually one of your colleagues being nice. But here's the difference. And I remember this demarcation period um, where it went from literally a player in the middle of a, a, a mob would spot me and say, if she stays, I'm not talking to the rest of you. And this happened to a lot of us. And I would look to my colleagues, my friends, some of them, and I'd be like, you know, what do I do? Or like, can you give me quotes? And they'd be like, yeah, we'll give you quotes, like get out so we can get our quotes. And they would give them to me and I would accept that. And then I don't remember the first guy who did this to me, with me, for me, but it was unbelievable. But I remember one guy answering to a guy, a player saying, if she's here, I'm not talking with, then we're, then you're not talking to any of us then, then, then we're all out of here. It was someone who I respected. who was great. Right in that period, I did something that I'm still laugh at, but I'm embarrassed about. Um, Nancy Lieberman, who was one of the great pioneer women basketball players, played for the Continental Basketball Association. She was one of the first to play professional basketball. It wasn't just drafted, but actually played. And it was, she played in Tampa and I was in Orlando and I went there to cover the game. And she was in the visiting locker room, um, some, you know, visiting hockey locker room or something all by herself, obviously, because the men were in theirs. And all in a little huddle of men, reporters, and me were waiting for Nancy Lieberman to come out and talk. And she opened the door a crack and looks out at all of us, spots me and goes, just her, and motions me in. And I look at the guys around me who, again, we all knew each other, you know, we're all from Florida. And I'm like, basically, teehee, and made a beeline into that locker room with Nancy and got like a great story. And I still remember that whole experience. And later I was like, wow, that was crappy of me like i knew how it felt and then i allowed the same thing to happen yeah i never told that story that's weird i just remembered it and i don't know what to make of it what do you make of that i don't know i think on the one hand we all have sort of if you do this enough you have reporter instincts and you see here's this opportunity to yeah. talk to someone and i can't turn that down it's the kind of thing you would do in the moment and then later on think maybe i was kind of an asshole yeah yeah wait 1984 you covered the tampa bay buccaneers Yes. And this was a really bad football team. It was the final year of John McKay, the head, legendary head coach since deceased, who gave one of the great quotes of all time, which is when a uh, when a reporter asked, what do you think of your team's execution? He said, I'm in favor of it. So you were a B-rider. You didn't travel, but you covered the home games. The team finished 6-10. Uh, and 10. They sucked. It was a Steve DeBerg, Jack Thompson quarterback battles. Did you know how to cover an NFL team? No, 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 no. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh and I was traveling once or twice a week. It, it was an hour, maybe an hour and a half away from 
Uh, Coco, maybe, maybe two. I went back and forth a bunch of times. On Wednesday, the open locker room day, maybe, and then I'd come back for the game when it was home games. And it was kind of just John McKay was such an imposing figure and essentially like whatever he said. Um, no, I think I just faked it and and kind of just followed along. And there were some really great journalists in Florida that I followed and all the big you know, columnists of the day who were called sports editors. They're really columnists, mm-hmm. Hubert Mizell and and uh, Larry Guest and Ed Pope, Edwin Pope and all those guys. You know, we just sort of stood back and watched them work. And I probably did that, you know, at the time. I just was so happy to be there. And, you know, I went from covering the Space Coast in Titusville High School and Astronaut High School to uh, covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That was pretty cool. And so... Um, I was, yeah, I just tried to listen and learn and, um, yeah. You wrote a great piece, December 20th, 1984. It was ex-Tampa Bay Buccaneers coach misunderstood by many, and it was the retirement of John McKay. And again, for people who don't know, John McKay, legendary, legendary coach, coached USC to a bunch of national championships, coached a bunch of Heisman winners, came to the Buccaneers, took over as an expansion coach, and really turned, turned that franchise into something. And your lead was, the moment was not particularly sentimental, nor the scene dramatic. And the man on stage was neither misty-eyed nor acting much differently than he ever had. John McKay exited from the side door at one Buccaneer place like he was leaving any other press conference. Only this time, he would not be back, at least in the same context. The dry wit, the sarcasm, it was there this week on his last day, as it was probably there on his first. There were no consciences to clear, no old scores to settle, no regrets, just a simple adios, fellas. If it hurt John McKay to end a 37-year coaching career after a 6-10 and 10 season, and a 44-91 and one mark the last nine years with the Tampa Bay Bucks, he barely let on. Truth is, he doesn't much care what anyone outside of his close friends and family thinks. He's 62 years old, still recovering from cataract surgery, tired and a little fed up, and just wanting to play some golf. First of all, it's freaking great. Like, that's great. That's really freaking good. But I am kind of interested, as a young reporter covering an intimidating veteran coach, it is funny how 62 seems so old at the time. Now it's like, oh, it's not that. Um, was it even possible for you to forge, foster any sort of relationship with him? He didn't no. know my name. He didn't know. Oh, God, no, no. I would be probably never made eye contact with me. I, I asked questions. I was, you know, I tried to hold my own. I don't think I was like embarrassing, but nobody else I don't think could get a tremendous amount out of him either. I don't think the famous Tampa Tribune columnist who they named the press box after, and now I'm blanking and I could picture him exactly. Uh, you know, those guys had had some rapport with him, but no, he, he was just so stoic and this, no relationship with his players either. You know, I don't think he, when I left for that final press conference, this came to mind for some reason, the weird stuff you remember. Um, Larry Guest, our columnist, said to me, grab his last cigar. Take his last cigar that that he had. And I'm like, wait, excuse me? He's like, it'd be a good souvenir. Bring it back for me. It it was not for me. It was for him. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. You know, scared of Larry Guest, too. And so sure enough, after the final press conference, he always had a stogie, you know, and I go up there and a disgusting butt, you know, cigar butt, like how nauseating. And um, and I did. I got it and brought it back. <laughs> this nauseating thing for Larry Guest as a, a souvenir. Isn't that weird? That is weird. But I will say, I went through a phase when I was a when I was a young SI like reporter, and I would go to different places. My roommate 
at the time was the editor of Slam Magazine, Russ Bankson. And we would um we would have a contest. We'd bring stuff back and we'd hang it from the fridge. So I remember he had like a I think I got actually a Kentucky players wristband that he left behind. I put it in my bag, brought it home. A bottle cap from the Yankees popping their champagne bottles, brought it back. And we had for a while this little refrigerator taped to the refrigerator, pieces of shit things that there's nothing to do with. So that would have fit in really well. Well, I stole one other thing in my career, and I'm not ashamed to say it. And it was, well, you just reminded me, the White Sox won the World Series. You know, game was in Houston. It was that extra inning game. It was very late. And I'm standing there after the final deadline, but I was going to go back again to the clubhouse. And I called my brothers. I never did this. I was never sentimental like that. Uh, and I cried a bit um, talking to them because baseball's different. You know, like we were Bears fans, but I don't know. I just made me really tearful. Um, we, were Bear, we were White Sox fans on the north side of Chicago in the northern suburbs. You know, there weren't many of us. And um and they taught me everything I ever knew about sports are much older than me. And I left and I went to the clubhouse. They didn't tell me get anything. They were just cute and wanted to know what was happening. And I go to the clubhouse and Paul Knurkel the only guy there. And I talked to him for a second and he puts down his sticky half drunk champagne bottle on a stool and walks out. And that's it. And I look around the room like, should I, shouldn't I, should I? And I grab this sticky champagne bottle and I sort of tuck it underneath an arm and walk out. And I go to the press box and someone sees me and they're like, oh, my God, what did you get? What is that? And I told them, and instead of being like, oh, God, are you a loser? A bunch of guys are like, that is such a good idea. <laughs> like, And some of them ran back to see if they could get anything. And so I went home with this thing. I must have dumped out the champagne because even then you couldn't go with liquid or whatever. And I years later, I told Jerry Reinsdorf I had it. And I and I was like making fun of myself because I said, not only did I steal this thing from your clubhouse, but I have no way of proving what it is, even though I didn't need to. Who cares? But like, why do I, you know, my kids, if I die or something, my kids aren't even going to be able to prove that that was it. And he sent me a little necklace, if you will. And I didn't get along that great with Jerry. I mean, this sounds like we're buds. We were not at all. He sends me a little necklace thing that you put around a champagne bottle to verify that that's an official real thing they had made that said 2005 White Sox world champs that I could put around the thing. And that was the coolest thing ever. And um, where's the bottle? I still have the bottle. I could go show you that necklace thing I don't have. Can you believe it? I think I was so excited by it. I like took it off and showed it around and then lost it. The old lost necklace story. I know, I know, I know. Now you're not gonna believe me, but I do have this. I do have the champagne bottle in my bedroom. We <laughs> have a little cabinet. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter Casey, and I hear you're rushing a sorority in college. It's true. I hate sororities. Is that because when you were at Delaware Tech, all the Greek girls laughed at you and wouldn't let you into their parties? No. I bet you tried asking a sorority girl out, and she was like, listen, loser, I only date cool bros with tats and kegs. So walk the other way, John. And you were like, it's Jeff. And she was like, I don't care, just go. No. So what is it? I just don't understand why sororities don't wear old USFL jerseys and hats from RoyalRetros.com. They have all different styles and colors. It's really cool. I already put in an order. We're all wearing Arizona Wranglers jerseys for Greek games. Wow, can I come? Uh, sorry, John, but no. You wound up at the Chicago Tribune. You wound up covering the Jordan Bulls. I'll just throw a big, broad question at you, which is what was it like to cover Michael Jordan in his heyday? 
I still remember it um, so, so fondly because he got it in a way that um, I think people want wanted me in later years to say we didn't like him, you know, that he was so high on himself, blah, blah, blah. But he understood whether it was manipulating us or not, how to handle us in a way that we really appreciated. And he served us well and he knew his role. And by that, I mean, yes, he would push Scotty and Horace Grant in the front. And when he wanted to escape after practice and he'd run around, but he also knew when we needed him for sure. And so every couple of days he would make himself available after practice. He um, was there after every game and you could ask any beat writer, uh, he would come out and there'd be mobs of people and they would, you know, dissipate and dissipate and dissipate. And there'd always be the one little reporter. I don't know if they were little, but I, you know, and it'd be like, um, Micah, please say hi to uh, the, you know, the fans from Turkey, you know, wherever, you know, and he would stand there and, and very politely say hi to the fans of Turkey or wherever it was. It wasn't Turkey, but, you know, and so I, I really respected that. Um, he forged a relationship with the beat writers. He, he didn't screw us. He wasn't patronizing. He really wasn't. I mean, he was with some of us, I guess. I never felt that way. I never felt like he was, um, you know, misogynistic. And that was one of my first locker rooms where they weren't at all. Uh, um, they were gentlemen to a, to a man. And they followed Michael and Bill Cartwright and Horace and all of them. I mean, they they were really gentlemanly, and I appreciated that. March 12th, 1995. Just how does he get away with it? Answer simple. Your lead is because he's Michael. That answers so many questions these days. And whether you're pro con or somehow indifferent on the topic of Michael Jordan's return to basketball, you have to admit it would be nice to possess the sort of power that knows particularly no bounds and requires only a three word response. Annoying as it may be, it's easy because he's Michael. I love your writing. Your writing is freaking great. Like this, like oh, great. And uh, you don't behave like someone who's a good writer. You actually like have this, like, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you're like a really freaking good. Do you not feel that way? Do you know? Are you not oh. a confident writer? Uh, I mean, you know, you and I have had that discussion, how like we all think we suck on some level and we oh. all feel terrible after we finish writing big pieces um, no, I mean, I, no, I had an ego about me. I mean, there's no question. Like I was a little temperamental in editing and the editing process, you know, but I was not treated like a good writer at the Tribune really. And I don't mean that like, oh, I'm so poor me and like I'm a martyr, but we had great writers and I was young. And so I was just trying to keep up. And I felt pretty good about the fact that they gave me the bull's beat. I would have to be stupid not to feel good about that. And so I felt a, a tremendous responsibility about it. So it was mostly just me trying like hell to keep up. And you know what I tell my uh, students too, like in those days, my responsibility was, was like, I got to tell the millions of people out there who want desperately to know about the Bulls and they know everything that happened in the game and they know the score. And, you know, even then there was the, you know, not the ticker thing, but they still um, certainly watched the evening news and knew everything that happened. But no one could get in that Chicago stadium. No one could afford a ticket. And so I felt like I had to be the storyteller and paint this this kind of book 
you know, through the season, each, each game was, it was a part of a chapter. And, and, uh, and so I guess, you know, that kind of lent itself to a certain, I don't know, a certain quality of writing that it didn't put pressure on me to break news. I had Sam Smith, uh, who is a great reporter and wrote Jordan rules and still broke, broke stories. And I tried to, too, of course, but I really, really wanted to just write well. <laughs> like, and I couldn't get away with that now. You know, that's what's so sad. Like, I couldn't have had fun with that kind of writing probably now. When you're covering a team that's the center of the universe, did you enjoy that or hate that? Oh, hated it. We hated it. Uh, it was the worst. When we saw Ahmad Rashad, it was like all over because, you know, they were all just all over. And, and, and they were good. I mean, they were all good coming in from New York and L.A. And um, and so they had their own relationships with the Bulls to some degree. I mean, the Bulls players knew Michael knew those guys. And so sometimes they'd get good stories and Ahmad Rashad would get good stuff. And basically they just sort of edged us out. And so, no, we all hated it. And that's when you did have the courage to to just slink away in the corner with a, uh, you know, a B.J. Armstrong or, or a uh, a Judd Bushler, you know, who, right. Steve Kerr, you know, frankly, um, who everybody wasn't standing around. Um, that was really fun. But I remember you talking about watching Tom Verducci work a locker room where he would go to the guy that no one went to. I didn't have that kind of courage in big game situations um, in football games. I would not be the person with the left, you know, guard, um, you know, trying to get different stuff. Like I, I would, if they were the sixth person I talked to, but I'd still be nervous that I had to get the, I'd be in the scrum. Like I was in those scrums. I hated them to death. In 1994, you wrote a book called Transition Game, an inside look at life with the Chicago Bulls. And it was about the season without Michael Jordan, or there were more than one season, but, and the cover literally features Jordan in a Birmingham Barons uniform and, you know, uh, a montage of different players. It's a weird topic because you basically wrote about the Bulls without their marquee player. Yeah. I love picking an author's most obscure book or like a book, like right now, I just, I'm, your book right now on Amazon is ranked 3,597,160, which is probably better than my Roger Clemens book. So don't feel bad. Yeah. Why'd you write that book? And what was that? What was that sort of? I love the hell out of that book. It was like the first time I could write and say like, fuck in in writing. You know, I was like, this is so cool and so freeing. And it was before we wanted to have kids. And I feel like I was pregnant. We had our first kid in 95. And so I kind of knew my life was going to change. I felt like if I didn't write a book, then I was never going to write a book again for the rest of my life. And, And it gave me this freedom. And in those days, they still hadn't made any kind of rule where like you couldn't write a book while you were on the beat, which which was like off again, on again rule at the Tribune. Um, and so it was really, really fun. I don't think I thought about like maybe I won't sell any books. That's how dumb I was. And it was a great season. And I had a chapter on Michael with the Birmingham Barons, which was cool. So it was worth it. And I still like that book. I really do. Was it refreshing? In a weird way, not having Jordan. Like, was it refreshing covering Pete Myers instead of Michael Jordan? Yeah. I mean, there were great stories out of Pete Myers and Bobby Hansen. And 
And Scottie Pippen, oh my God, he, that was the best year of his of his career, I think. And he should have been the MVP, but he was so stupid. And he did he had the gun charge and he had the um one point whatever seconds that he wouldn't come in. It was Tony Kukoc's first year, and he could barely speak English, and um they treated him like shit. And so I kind of got to know him slowly. I think two things that go overlooked in history. Number one, Michael Jordan hit, hitting like 202 at double A. People made fun of him. That was amazing. He hit 202, having not played since high school, and he was a six foot six outfielder. Like it was ridiculous. I know. I know. That was so fun interviewing him in Birmingham. I spent three, four days in Birmingham and um and seeing those kids around him, but seeing how happy he was. And he was very open with me and and talked about Pippin and Horace and and Ku Coach. And he was in the bathroom stall when Pippen wouldn't come in for the final play because uh, it was drawn up for Kukoc and, and Pippen was was the decoy. And so he refused to come in. And that was the game where Cartwright afterwards told off Pippen. And, you know, we didn't learn that for years. I think I learned that in the course of the book that he cried in the locker room, Cartwright, because he was so angry. Uh, telling Scotty how selfish he was. And they played, talk about a back-to-back. That was a night game. They played the next afternoon. So it was the greatest thing ever happened to Scotty because he could come back right away and have a great game. But Jordan was in the toilet stall and he was yelling out to, to his teammates, tell me what's happening. And someone said, you know, it's one point, whatever seconds, Pippen's not coming out. And he goes, Kukoc going to get the game winner. He's, he predicted exactly where he was going to shoot from, like the whole thing, the whole scenario he predicted. He was not surprised at all with Pippen's behavior. He gave me a lot, a lot of insight. That was really fun going to Birmingham and seeing how, just seeing how they reacted without him. I thought it was very clever with the transition game. I think that later, because that was the strength of their of their offense was their transition game. Um, and clearly it was a transition from Jordan. I don't know. I, I thought I was pretty cool coming up with that. I, but but yeah. I think those two, I think Jordan hitting 202 and the Bulls being actually really good that year mm-hmm. are two really impressive. It's like Phil Jackson, that might be his best coaching season, but nobody talks about it. And Jordan hitting 202, everyone made fun of him. And it's one of the great, it's ridiculous that that guy hit 202 in double A. Oh, he doesn't hit the curveball. Remember SI? He can't hit the curve. Baggett, Michael, you didn't talk to SI for years. Yeah. You wound up at ESPN. You were a columnist there for a long time, ESPN.com. And then ESPN has these layoffs. It's uh, 2017. They had massive layoffs. Uh, among the people kicked away Trent Dilfer, Danny Cannell, Len Elmore, Jim Bowden, Ed Werder, and one Melissa Isaacson. It was your second time getting laid off from a job. You got laid off from the trip years earlier. What does oh. it feel like to get laid off? Oh, my God. It's the worst. I mean, things you remember exactly where I was when I was laid off from the Tribune. Uh, the Tribune, it wounded me like nothing else professionally in my life, obviously. I mean, there are personal things. To grow up, you know, with a paper, I spent 20 years there and thought I was going to die at my terminal. You know, I had no preconceived notions in those days that, you know, you could go to TV or radio or do anything else. That was my dream job. I was covering the bulls. I was, I was there and I was in my dream city and, and there was nothing that was going to stop me. And then all of a sudden the rugs pulled out from under me and, and I'm sort of 
not even given the courtesy of being laid off in person. Not that that would have been so nice, frankly. I get this call from this guy I couldn't stand this uh, associate editor who was just you know twenty years younger than me, and and uh, you know he was just not nice, and it, it gave me the script that I would later become familiar with when I got it again at ESPN where they just read you the script and they can't really say anything. And it was just so obnoxious. There was no closure. There was no thank you. There was no nothing. And I'm not sure I would have mattered. My husband came home from work and I didn't tell him to, he just did. And I cried for like two days and I wrote a, a column I begged them to let me write a column because I had interviewed Dennis Savard, the great Blackhawks player who was Hall of Famer. And and coincidentally, it, it happened that the column was about how he had been fired as the coach of the Blackhawks, and yet how he could never get that out of his heart. He still loved them. Writing that thing was so personal and so unbelievably perfect for me to be able to feel what he felt. And and I had the interview with him that afternoon that I was laid off. And so I kept it and I interviewed him and then I begged them to let me publish it, to let, to let them publish it. And they did. I don't remember what I said. I don't remember anything, but I remember Dennis Savard crying. The first time I ever did that in my life, cried on the phone to Dennis Savard while I was interviewing him. And he was so sweet and he so got it. And I got it too, because I couldn't stop loving the Tribune. I, I hated, you know, the guy who fired me and we canceled our subscription and I told myself I hated them, but I couldn't hate them any more than I could hate being a journalist. That was who I was. You know, I the next day I wrote a blog, immediately started writing blogs and I didn't know what I was doing, but I felt like I had to. I was invited to career day. Uh, the next day at my, at my daughter's junior high oh my and God. I wrote a blog about I went to career day without a career. And my question in the blog was, who am I if not Melissa Isaacson of the Chicago Tribune? Because that's how you introduce yourself, right? Hi, I'm Melissa Isaacson of the Chicago Tribune. Um, and I didn't know who I who I was without that. And so it was really a mourning process. Um, my kids didn't know how to console me. It was the first time they, I think, saw me cry like that. And then ESPN happens. I'm walking out of the Y, you know, and I didn't expect it in a million years. It was a higher up that called and he was a little bit nicer, but not really. I felt like he was firing me for something bad that I did. And I was waiting to hear what I did. And I remember sitting, going to my car and, and I didn't know what to do. And I sat in the back seat of my car and held the phone and stayed in the back seat of my car. I didn't know what to do. It's horrible. It's awful and horrible. And I wouldn't let myself go through that again. And I was, and so that was the end of my journalism career for all intents and purposes. I hate to say it that way because I feel like I'm still a journalist and I still wrote stuff, wrote a book. So I wasn't not a journalist, but I was never going to work again like that. April 24th, 2009, Chicago Tribune. Savard still has his heart in it. Even after firing Hawks are near and dear to him, your lead was his heart can't register a paycheck. It cannot tell him to stop loving an organization that is in his DNA. A firing cannot make Dennis Savard suddenly turn it all off. And so he does the radio and the TV and the appearances for the Blackhawks more than anyone requires of him. And he walks through the United Center each game night, accepting the kind words of strangers and friends, watching his boys and trying to tell himself that it really is okay, that he is not their coach anymore. They always say things happen for the best, he says. And I know people say this and it's not always the best thing. It's not what they want. But I've been able to do stuff with my family I haven't done in 30 years. I'm going to Vegas for my daughter's 21st birthday. 
He insists it's okay. Chairman Rocky Wirtz and President John McDonough were as professional as could be. Even more, they were compassionate. Even relieving Savard of his coaching duties after four games a season, they kept him in the organization to which he brought so much honor. And for that, he is grateful. It's actually a really sad freaking column. So you wrote this having been just laid off. Knowing I was laid off and I knew that the readers wouldn't know. What did I say in the last line? I feel like I said something in the last line that like gave it away that like I didn't have a job anymore, maybe. Being fired can't change who you are, he says. It can only break your heart. Oh, I bawled when I wrote that. I mean, that's so gross to say you cried at your own writing. No, but it like, isn't. Okay. Nobody knew that. Yeah, I, fe- I felt like if anybody read between the lines, they would get it. But of course, no one would read between the lines. Um, you know, I don't know when they announced I was, you know, whacked. You know, I felt like the copy desk would get it. And uh, it didn't matter. I mean, it didn't matter at all. But no, I wrote that all about me. That was totally about me. And and I told him I was fired and he kind of talked me through it. And um, yeah, that was um, the most personal column I ever wrote. And it was the last column I ever wrote for the Tribune. And uh, it was t- it, it was appropriate, but so sad. You and I and a million of us, we were all young, hot shit at some point in our careers. We were the young beat writer. We were the young blah, blah, blah. You were covering the Buccaneers. I was a young, I got to Sports Illustrated at 24. You think you're the shit. You are the shit. Whoa, you're so young. You're so young. What? You write for it. You're so young. You know, like, and then like you blink and you're not. It hits everyone. It hits everyone at some point. Everyone I know in journalism has been a hot shit at some point in their career. And when you realize you're not, it's a pretty fucking hard dagger to take to the heart. Do you disagree? No, I totally, I mean, I don't disagree. Right. I agree that that feeling of being a young hotshot is really cool and even if we deny it, we all know if we have a great job and we're in our 20s and like absolutely take pride in it. And and uh, and then I'm not sure we even know when we're too old. Maybe it's a few years after we're kind of at that point. Um, you see people younger and then, you, yeah, it's a crappy feeling when you're um, when you're not that that cool. You know, I think it was when I went to ESPN, I was never a senior writer I never got that senior writer uh, thing. And so I stopped being a hotshot, you know, and um, I don't know. I don't know if if it was that I wasn't a hotshot or if that I, I just felt lost. I felt lost all of a sudden. I didn't feel I had a readership. That was what was cool in those days is that you had a readership and you, and you sort of understood who they were. You had an audience. And then all of a sudden... I go to ESPN and I'm living in Chicago and I'm on this island, like so many of us were who didn't live in Bristol. And the cool kids were in Bristol, you know, it was like the big high school cafeteria. They were all, the cool kids, you know, were still there. And then like, and some cool kids were out in islands, but I wasn't one of those people. And I never felt really a part of it. I got hate mail before, but it's the first time the hate mail was like, like fire her. Like it, they were still writing stuff like that to women in the comments sections without names, there was like the first big wave of it. And where people wouldn't just say, what is she talking about? She's stupid to get rid of her, fire her. And that hit me so hard because it was like my livelihood. And I'd already seen what happened. I got laid off and I had kids and, and I was so scared. Even, you know, I was so, so scared. And I thought ESPN is going to read this and fire me. People don't realize when they write shit like that, like hate mail, like, that was very scary being at ESPN and thinking like they could just decide that I sucked. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, 
And then they did. Well, they didn't, but I tell myself I was in good company. So thanks for reading the other good people. It is funny how people would be like, you fucking suck, blah, blah, blah. And like to them, it's a two second fleeting thought that they put down on social media. And to you and I, it sits there in front of our eyes and it enters our head. And you're just like, to Joe, anonymous tweeter, Joe 27, blah, 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 with an icon of a MAGA hat. It's nothing. It's just a thought, an angry thought between, you know, shifts on whatever job. But that stuff can sting. No question about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't want them to think it's hurtful because, you know, to give them satisfaction. But it is. But it is. And like, you know, in the olden days, I remember once getting a really mean, um, you'd get letters in, in the, you know, back in the day. And in, so I um, would write back. I would write a letter back mm. and I'd write the same thing. I'd say, thank you so much. It'd be like I didn't really get it. I'd be like, thank you so much, your letter. It's the highest praise a writer can get that that would move you to the point where you would actually write me. And um, I had a, a good time doing that. One time, though, they wrote their names in those days. Like they would write their names, who they were and stuff. And I looked up the person and I called them. And I remember this because they were so shocked. And I'm like, hi, I'm Melissa Isaacson from Florida Today. And you wrote me this letter. And they were like, oh, my God. And at the end of the conversation, they were apologizing. We were like best friends, best friends, you know, and it was the meanest letter in the world. But they don't, I think to this day, probably a lot of these people don't realize we're real people. (laughs) I used to do that too. And it (laughs) it was so ridiculous. They'd be like, hey, Jeff, suck on a cock. You fucking suck, blah, 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 right? I'd write, I'd write them. I'd be like, dear Jim, I received your email. Wow, we clearly disagree on this. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to write. And then you didn't ever really get back. Hey, man, I didn't realize you were so cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you'd absolutely get those. And you're like, what the hell? You just told me to suck a cock and kill myself. And now, like, it's like. Kill myself. Yeah. And absolutely kill myself. And one one of my favorite insults were, until you can pee standing up, you have no right to tell um you know blah 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 and it really like hurt me i was really young and i got like some mean letters and i got a bunch of mean letters and i saved them and we all got drunk after work every night and so we uh it flirted today a bunch of my friends took all the mean letters and we were drinking and put it in like made a bonfire in the backyard of someone and then all the guy writers peed on it like i remember them all awesome. like isn't that gross but um yeah but somehow i thought that was so great ISs of all writers. Give me your best confrontation with an athlete, coach, et cetera, from the course of your career. Dick Butkus. Um, I grew up adoring Dick Butkus, like so many Bears fans. I had a little number 51 little T-shirt that I wore my whole life until it was so threadbare that my mother came up to me one day and grabbed it and ripped it off my body because I wore it every day and she was tired of it. And she's funny like that. And so I was naked. I was like eight, whatever. But I loved him. And then I get to the Orlando Sentinel and they invent this Dick Butkus Award for the linebacker of the year in college football. And they're like, do you want to do the story? I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be so great. And so I called Dick Butkus. It was the biggest puff piece ever. And I call him and I'm like, "Um, hi, you know, we're in it. We had planned the interview and everything. And I said, "Uh, you know, I just wanted to, you know, know, just get a feel for how that how, how did that feel when you when you heard that um, that we were naming you know that the Orlando quarterback or football club was naming this award? And he goes, "What? What do you mean? How do I feel? I don't. I, don't, I have no idea. What kind of question is that? What do you mean? How do I feel? I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, so how do you feel about like in general being a person people look up to? He goes, 
look up to what the f- i don't know what you're talking about every question was so mean he would not answer it i was like oh my god the big hole in the paper the next day about the pendant buckets award and finally the way i got out of it was i said um and, and i could tell he was like either sort of drunk or wanted to be drunk or after drunk or you know something liquor was involved in some way <laughs> and i said and i said um you know this is clearly a really bad time i could tell i'm catching you at a terrible terrible time would it be better if i called you again and he goes yeah yeah and then i did and that was how i got out of it but i never between him the bears pop, you know popping the bubble of like being a fan and then never being a fan again. I knew Butkus wasn't a sweetheart, but so, so mean like that. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's probably not the best story, but, but it was, it was, I got off the phone shaken, would not answer a single question. There was a time in my career where I'd be like, God, what a fucking asshole Dick Buckus is. And people would say, what's Dick, Dick Buckus like? And I'd be like, he's a dick. And I feel like with age, I have gotten a little more like people have bad days. You know, people have bad days. Like how, do you walk away from encounters like that and think Dick Buckus is an asshole? Or do you walk away from encounters like that and think he probably was just having a bad day? Um, I think then I was really hurt and thought he was an asshole and told everybody I knew he was a huge asshole. And I think the next day I had a halfway decent conversation with him and I wasn't mature enough to realize that, you know, I mean, it doesn't make him not an asshole, but I wasn't mature enough to think that he had a bad day. Now I think I'm so overly understanding of human nature in a way that maybe I lost my edge. I probably have in many ways. I don't think I would make it now if I was a beat reporter because of that edge that I've lost. Like I think in some ways I would be too soft. I don't know. You don't want to hurt people's feelings. You want to understand. You want to realize that they had bad days or they had a drinking problem or I, I don't know. I mean, maybe if they were just a real bastard, a racist asshole, you know, then and then, of course, it would bring out the mean in me, too. Um, well, Missy, I appreciate you doing this. I'm a huge admirer. You're one of the legit good eggs in this sort of world of journalism that we occupy and teaching that we occupy. And uh, I should have done this a long time ago. I really appreciate you doing it. Well, my gosh, I so appreciate it. And I know how I feel about you. And I think one time you said, because I was going on and on about you, because I do admire the hell out of you. And for years I did without telling you. And you were like, I think you, you didn't say it in a mean way, but it kind of like I was ass kissing and it made, I think it made you uncomfortable in a way because I was like a little bit nauseating about it. But I do think so highly of you. And um, and yeah, I want to talk to you another time about how I'm going to teach your bow book was brilliant and I loved it. And, um, and, and I, I literally want to teach it. I want to use it as a structure of, um, Oh, you're embarrassing me. I know, but you know what? That's bullshit. Don't be embarrassed. It was fucking good. And it was, um, and it's a perfect, uh, vehicle to teach reporting and interviewing. And I'm always looking for different ways to teach my classes and I'm literally going to use that book. So I'm going to you know, and you're so nice. Everyone should know this. And I know they do that. You never say no to kids and all my students know you, you know, they're like best friends with you because you legitimately return calls and emails and you never say no to, and now you're going to get 5 billion calls. But I know you make this, you tell people that, that you, 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 you know, you welcome that. And, and we, we out here in the wilderness of teaching appreciate the hell out of that. I want to thank today's guest, Melissa Isaacson, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Missy on Twitter at MK Isaacson. 
and visit her website at melissaisaacson.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. It would be really appreciated. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.